notice. My 12-year-old daughter has given me an ultimatum. Dad, stop ruining Christmas. Is this on? Am I coming through? No. No. Yes. No. Maybe. Trying to, it's, like, it's like, you know, the pitcher watching the catcher's signals. But I don't know what signals he's making. But my daughter has warned me to stop ruining Christmas. You see, a few weeks ago, I deconstructed and exposed people's misunderstandings of the Christmas story. Mary riding on a donkey, a non-existent words of a non-existent innkeeper, and worst of all, the carol, We Three Kings, and our misconceptions about the Magi. Well, I'll tell you that this week, those comments did come back to bite me. The children's choir who was here singing for us last week is a combined choir of our church and the congregational church and some other uh, some other children are involved in that as well. Well, uh, we were out caroling the children's choir and their families and then some other members of the congregational church were all out caroling at Windward Gardens and then at Quarry Hill. And so as we went from stop to stop in Quarry Hill at one of the stops, Ursula, who was leading the carolers, said, hey, Let's now sing We Three Kings. And my seven-year-old Hannah, who you saw run up here a moment ago, loudly said, Hey, Dad, that's the carol you were complaining about. (laughs) However, it is Abigail who's put me on notice, first because I ruined Christmas in the carol We Three Kings, but secondly, she said last week's sermon was so depressing Because we were dealing with the darkness that sometimes is part of Christmas when Christmas is not merry or when the holidays are not happy. So this week, if as I'm preaching, I look like a man under considerable duress, it's because there's a tremendous amount of pressure not to ruin Christmas any more than I already have. And that said, the question today is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You know, we don't like that question in the way that it's often asked, because it's usually asked in a way that implies we're not taking the initiative. That we're waiting because we haven't done something. But the reality is, so much of our lives, we actually have no choice. We just end up waiting. You know, and in this culture, we hate waiting. We hate it so much, and yet we do so much of it. One commentator described our lives as one mad rush to get from one wait to another, from one line to another. Please wait to be seated. Please wait for the next available operator who will assist you. Did you ever think about the fact that we have an entire rooms in our society dedicated to waiting? Your doctor's office, your dentist's office, your mechanic, the waiting room? You know, one study found that the average person throughout their lifetime spends five years waiting in lines. Five years of your life spent waiting in line. The average person will spend six months of their lives waiting at traffic lights. And if you include that silly little blinking light there up the street, especially in the summer, you can easily double that. We hate waiting, and yet we do so much of it. In fact, we're reaching the end of a season of waiting because we're just days away from the end of the Advent season. And as we've noted before, Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, meaning coming. Something is coming, and in this season, we're waiting for it. We're anticipating it. And young children wait so anxiously for the coming of Christmas on the Tuesday night. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. You see, they believe that Christmas 
is worth the wait. And so what happens? It affects their sleeping, their waking, their conversations, their actions. Because when something is worth the wait, it does change us, doesn't it? It affects us. And friends, the Christmas story asks us impatient people a question. Is he worth the wait? Is Jesus worth the wait? Because if he is, how should he affect our waking and sleeping, our conversation, our actions, our very lives? And asking that, let's pray together. God, as we open your word now, speak to us. Speak to us impatient people. Impatient, yet we spend so much of our lives waiting. And Lord, what message do you have for us in the midst of our waiting? Speak now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. In the Pew Bible, that's page 805. And if you have a large print Pew Bible, that's 1018. Luke chapter 2. As we come to talk about waiting. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 18. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that has been told them that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. That's a familiar story. And and even listening to it again, you might notice and you might say, Adam, you told me that we're going to talk about waiting. But there's no waiting in that story. Everything happens immediately. The angels appear. They make a promise. Good news. Great joy. Savior born in Bethlehem. And immediately that very night, what do they do? There's no waiting. They go right out to see the baby. They have an immensely moving experience. And it says they immediately then go off praising God and telling everyone about their experience. I mean, the shepherds hear, they go, they see, they tell everyone. There's no delay. There's no waiting in this story. Is there? Well, maybe not that night. But did you ever wonder what did the shepherds do the next day? And what did they do the day after that? And the week after that? And the month after that? And the year after that? Well, they went back and they lived their everyday lives. They waited. Because think about it. What did the angel promise? A savior. And what did the shepherds see? A baby. How much saving do you think he was doing that night? 
the shepherds were left waiting. They were left waiting for that baby to grow, for that baby to do something. They, they heard promises from the angels, but they were left waiting for them to come true. I mean, the angels that night promised peace. And do you think perfect peace descended upon them that very evening? Or the next? Or the next? You know, friends, the incredible promises that the angels made to the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth, the wonderful things that the shepherds saw that night, the intense emotions they experienced, the incredible joy that filled them. Well, after that night, what did the shepherds do? They returned to their everyday lives. And they waited. They waited for it all to come true. They'd seen the baby, but there was more to come. In fact, for everything the shepherds experienced, it would be another 30 years before the shepherds would have seen anything significant from that child. You know, Luke chapter 3, verse 23 makes a passing comment. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So it was at least 30 years from that night that Jesus even began his ministry. And did you ever think about those 30 years? I mean, these shepherds had one unbelievable night, one unbelievable experience, and then 30 years of everyday life waiting for something to happen. Waiting to see if what was said about the baby came to be true. Did you ever think that maybe during those 30 years they might have started to doubt the promises they heard that night? You know, the angels said it was a savior, but I I haven't seen or heard any saving. The angels promised peace, but I'm not feeling it. And I'm sure not seeing it in the world today. Do you wonder if some of the shepherds maybe started to even doubt that they had the experience at all? Maybe we just imagine those angels. You know, maybe it was just a dream or a hallucination. You know, maybe it was a bad piece of mutton I ate or something. You know, you ever wonder if some of those shepherds that they just gave up waiting altogether. They're like, you know, it, it was totally a lie. We, we were duped. I mean, that baby, he's done nothing. I mean, these are just empty promises. Empty promises he was going to do something or be something or, or amount to something. But there's been nothing. So just forget him. Did, did you ever wonder if, if there might have been other shepherds who were amongst those that saw that night that gathered regularly to talk about their experience? Maybe gathered regularly to retell the experience and to to assure one another that, in fact, it was real. And to encourage one another, hold on. Let's persevere as we wait. And assure one another that, yes, yes, it'll be worth the wait. Just hold on. You see, friends, it's easy. It's easy for us to believe and to follow when there are angels, miracles, experiences, and emotions. But how about in the everyday? How about in the waiting? Is he worth the wait? And if he's worth the wait, how does it transform our waiting? You see, because you and I are far more like those shepherds than we realize. You know, many of us can look back in our own lives on a time or maybe some times in our lives when we had an incredible experience with Christ, the way the shepherds had that night. 
You know, we came to a saving faith and a trust in Him. We experienced Jesus in worship. He touched us through prayer and healing. We were identified with Him in baptism. We were united to His body and membership. We were empowered by Him in our ministry. And we had this experience. And immediately in that moment, we heard and we went and we saw and we experienced. And we told everyone we were so excited. But then the next day came. And maybe we're still kind of excited. And then the day after that, and we're a little less. And the day after that, a little less. And... And pretty soon we're just back into the day in, day out, every day grind. And we are left waiting. What was once so real, so immediate, so certain, the longer that everyday life tends to go on, the longer you wait, you might start to wonder. Was that real? You might start to doubt. You might even start to despair and be tempted just to give up. And this is why we gather This is why we gather, as we do on Sundays and at other times throughout the week, this is why we gather regularly, because we need to retell the story to one another. We need to assure one another that the experiences are in fact real, that the words are true. We need to recall together the promises of what is to come. We need to encourage one another to hold on and to persevere while we wait, to assure one another, yes, Jesus is worth the wait. This is why the author of the book of Hebrews encouraged his readers saying, let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near to hold fast in the waiting without wavering. We need to believe that He's faithful. We need to believe that He is worth and that He's worthy of the wait. So if we meet together, we encourage one another, we spur one another on to love and good deeds, we retell the story, we recall the promises, we spur one another on and we say, yes, Jesus is worth it. Worth it. Hold on. And notice the final word in verse 25. We do all this all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage all the more fervently. Wait all the more expectantly as the day draws near. Because He is worth it. And if He's worth it, that will affect the way you prepare yourself. And the way that you live right now. I mean, we all know what this looks like. As the day draws near, the bride waits all the more expectantly. And prepares herself all the more seriously because she believes her groom is worth the wait. As the day draws near, the expectant parents wait all the more expectantly and prepare all the more seriously for, their, for the birth because they believe that their child is worth the wait. As the day draws near, the senior in high school or college waits all the more expectantly and prepares all the more seriously because graduation is worth the wait. When we believe something's worth the wait, that waiting is filled. It's not empty. It's full. It's full of expectation, anticipation, and preparation. Our lives are shaped by what we wait for. Our lives are shaped by what we wait for. And so while our impatient culture tells us that waiting is really just throwaway, and they treat it with contempt, waiting can be a powerful tool for our formation. The everyday is not just a distraction or a waste. The everyday is a powerful tool that God uses to form us. If the end is worth the wait, 
then it shapes the way that we wait right now. It forms us as people. The bride wants to be ready for the groom. The couple wants to be ready for the child. The student wants to be ready for graduation. And church, we want to be ready also. Because you see, we're a lot like those shepherds. They had already heard the promises about Jesus, the Savior who brings peace. Their lives had already been touched by an encounter with Jesus. They had seen the baby Jesus lying in a manger. They'd already seen, but not yet fully. They'd already heard and believed the promises, but they had not yet seen their full fulfillment. They'd already seen the baby in the cradle, but they had not yet seen the man who would hang upon the cross. Their lives had already been touched by Jesus, but not yet as they one day might be. The shepherds lived in waiting, having already begun to experience and know him, but yet waiting every day for a time when they might fully know him. The shepherds lived as we do now, in between the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come once. We live in a time Jesus has already come once. He was born of a virgin, lived amongst us, taught many things, touched us, healed our diseases. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose victorious on the third day over death. We've already heard him. We've already believed in him. We've already encountered him. But even that we've not done in its fullness. So we live all of our days in waiting. Because Jesus promised he came once and he said, I'm going to come again. I'm going to return. The Jesus who's come will come again. And at the end, we will fully experience salvation. When he returns, he's going to judge the living and the dead. When he returns, he's going to bring time to its end. When he returns, he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. And sorrow and sickness and sin and death itself will be no more. And all things will be made new. We've already and truly experienced Jesus' salvation. But just like those shepherds, we now live waiting because there's more to come. And church, is Jesus worth the wait? And if he is, how will I wait? How will it change the way that I live here and now in this time of waiting? It's a great question to ask. And so good a question that Jesus answered it. As Jesus taught those that were around him and his disciples, he told a a story, a parable in Luke chapter two, just 10 chapters after the account we read. And I'd like us to briefly look at that today. So turn with me a few pages forward to Luke chapter 12, which is page 819 or 1036, if you're using the large print Bibles. Jesus answered this question knowing That we live in a time of waiting. And so in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35, he says, Stay dressed and ready for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, He'll dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will set him over all of his possessions. But if the servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. But that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he'll receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not did what he deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom has much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. If Jesus is worth the wait, then how do we wait? And in this parable, Jesus says, wait ready. You know, some have cynically summarized this parable as Jesus is coming, look busy. But it's far better summarized by the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Be prepared. Jesus says, if you consider me worth the wait, then wait every day anticipating my return. And what does that look like? He describes it in detail. He says, live in a state of perpetual readiness, dressed for action, lamps burning, actively waiting, expecting him to come at any time because he is worth the wait. Just like those kids on Christmas, they're not going to be sleeping. Why? Because they're waiting. And they have trouble sleeping because they know Christmas is worth the wait. But is that how we wait for Jesus' return? So like the bride, like the expectant parents, like the student, prepare yourself. And verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, be prepared for whenever he might return. The, the Jewish people divided the night into three watches and a banquet would have begun at the first watch of the night at sunset. The second watch was from about 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And the third watch was from 2 a.m. to dawn. And Jesus says, so no matter how long. And prolonged the delay in my return. Blessed are the servants that the master finds awake and ready, actively seeking and serving. You know, a contemporary image might be the babysitter watching and waiting over the children and the house, waiting for the parents to return and to reclaim care for their household. And when the parents come back, what do they want from the babysitter? They want one thing. They want to know that no matter how late or unexpected their return, they want the house and the children to be found ready to be turned over to them. There's a babysitter faithfully watched. And church, will we? Will we be found ready and prepared? How will we wait? Is he worth the wait? And, and now to those who believe and who live as though he's worth the wait, we find a startling promise that would have knocked the original hearers off their seats. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table. And then he, the master, will come and serve them, the servants. Did you catch that? He says, the servants that are found faithful, the master comes home. And what does he do? He actually serves the servants. 
The master comes home and he says, no, 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 you guys have been faithful. Come here, have a seat. Sit at the table. Let me serve you. The servants that lived as though he was worthy, lived as though the master was worthy and he was worth waiting for and thus were found ready. It says that the master turns around and serves them. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, declares, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He basically says that those who are ready, they're invited to be seated at the table. Seated at the table with God. Those who believed and lived as though He is worth the wait are invited to the marriage supper to sit at the table with God forever. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is not saying you earn a place at God's table. Salvation is not by works. The issue is not that the servants served enough or performed enough to merit a place at the table. Jesus says their readiness revealed hearts touched by grace that loved the Master. Their readiness reveals that they believed He was worth the wait. The fact that they were ready reveals their love because only love motivates us. To such readiness. You know, in response to Peter's clarifying question there in verse 41, Jesus describes four types of servants, four attitudes of waiting. The first, you see, is, is the wise and faithful servant who loves the master and, and thinks he's worth waiting for because he's doing his master's will when he comes. You know, again, I wonder about those shepherds. If there were some from that first Christmas night who were anxiously waiting and watching and ready. I wonder if there were any shepherds that met Jesus in the cradle and said he's worth the wait and followed him all the way to the cross and beyond. Have you ever wondered that? Second, Jesus mentions the servant who says, my master is delayed in coming. In other words, if the master's away, the servants will play. The servant's obedience is not motivated by love, but by fear or guilt or obligation. So so if the master's delayed, if no one's watching, then the motivation to obey diminishes. He's not worth. He's not worth watching for. He's not worthy of waiting for. He's only just worth worth watching out for. Lest he catch me. It's fear, it's guilt, it's obligation. You know, in the rural areas where Jesus lived, I mean, it wasn't that populous. Do you ever wonder... If maybe some of the shepherds that saw him that first night, like ran into him later on in his life. And when they did their, you know, maybe they, they straightened themselves out and they dusted themselves off and they, they cleaned up their language a little bit, put on their best act and, and, you know, they spent a little bit of time with Jesus. And then once he moved on his way again, they just went back to life as it was. Maybe Jesus wasn't really worth the wait every day. Maybe just Sundays and the occasional weekday. And third was the servant, it says, who knew his master's will, but didn't get ready or act according to his will. You see, this servant might call the master master and might enjoy the benefits of living with him, but they don't really love the master. They just love the benefits of the master. You know, you wonder if some of these shepherds from that first night gave up waiting because they're like, you know, it wasn't really worth it. Because if this, if this baby is not going to provide me any more religious or emotional experiences or immediate benefits, it's not worth it. See, sometimes we, we love the blessings and not the blesser. 
And finally, there's the servant who did not know his master's will. Now, there's an ignorance that we all have as we grow up. However, there's also an ignorance when we don't seek out to grow, when we'd rather not know. You know, does the servant love his master and think his will is worth seeking out and understanding? You know, you wonder if some of these shepherds preferred to cling to the baby in the cradle and rejected the man on the cross. You know, yeah, I know they're the same person, but I really prefer that meek and gentle baby to the bloodied and demanding man. I don't really want to understand what he taught or or how he lived or why he died. I'd rather choose sentiment over a savior. I'd rather the baby than a master. You know, friends, the difference between these different types of servants and service is love. Obligation, guilt, fear, they only motivate us so far. But when the master's delayed, when no one's looking, when we want otherwise, when it will make us uncomfortable or inconvenienced, when we can plead ignorance, if our hearts don't love, if we don't believe that he's really worth the wait, we're not going to be ready. We're not going to be dressed for service with lamps burning. Without love, the servant might live in the master's household, might eat the master's food, might benefit from the master's provision. But if she does not believe that he is worth the wait, if he has no love for the master and his work, she will not keep herself continually ready. He will not live in an attitude of waiting. And so we have to ask followers of Christ, are you playing the game of bare minimum discipleship? What's the bare minimum I must believe? What's the bare minimum I must do? Just how much can I get and how little can I give? Just how much can I get away with? How far is too far? What's the least effort that I can expend in the master's work and still be called his servant? I don't really know what the master desires because I I haven't looked at it and I suspect if I do look at it, I'm not going to like it. So I'll just plead ignorance. Is that what he's worth to you? The heart that does not love is always asking, how much do I have to do? How far do I have to go and win? But friends, the heart that loves the master, the heart that says he's worth the wait, says, what more can I do? How much further can I go? Love motivates us and only love can motivate us to be ready and to wait expectantly for the master's return. Only if he's worth the wait do we live every day in anticipation and preparation, seeking and serving. Friends, it's about a heart problem. And only God can change your heart. So if your life reveals that your heart would rather play games than please the master, what you need is not change of behavior. You need a change of heart that will change your behavior. You need Jesus to change your heart and convince your fickle heart that he's worth it. He is worth the wait. He is worth living ready for. He is worth seeking and serving with your every day in the waiting for his return. So how does Jesus need to form or to reform your heart today? What does your heart reveal? What does your life reveal that your heart believes is really worth it? Are you just playing at the game of minimal faithfulness? Or is your heart overflowing with love, causing you to be ready? Ready for the Master's return. And when the Master Jesus returns, 
What's going to be revealed? What's going to be revealed of your heart? Will it be evidence of your love for Him? Will your life and your obedience evidence that Jesus is, in fact, worth the wait? Is He? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to know. Help us to trust. Help us to believe. And help us to live. Because you are worthy. You are worth the wait. Worth living. Worth living for and forgiving. Giving all that we have. May we live and may we give. In service to you. In readiness. Prepared. Because you're worth the wait. So transform our hearts and may they love more. And serve evermore. And bring you glory and honor and praise now and forevermore. Amen.